Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Disciplined Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it is a pleasure to introduce our next guest, Brittany Nicole Connor Savarda. Brittany has come to her profession through her own personal experience. And I'll certainly let her share her story. You can find it here and in many other places. But her own personal journey of growth and discovery led to her dedication to the discipline of emotional intelligence. That discipline led to her starting her own organization, Catalyst for Change, and Emotional Intelligence Magazine, one of the sponsors of this podcast. Brittany travels as a keynote speaker. She puts on workshops and educational engagements for organizations. She's constantly developing new training programs to help people, I believe she says, liberate themselves from themselves and do that in a way that helps them understand how to connect with others so much better in order to strengthen their relationships and the outcomes of their endeavors. So I'm really, really excited to share Brittany's thoughts and perspectives with you today. Of course, we have to stop and thank our sponsors. A big thank you to Humantel. Please head over to humantel.com if you are interested in furthering your observation skill set. If you've ever been interested in understanding what people are likely thinking or feeling at any given time, based on accurately evaluating what their facial expression and body language are telling you in the context of the situation, Humantel has the industry-leading online training available. So please head over there. And if you do, enter the code INQUASIVE25, I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E, for 25% discount on all their training. We have Brittany with us today. Please check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine, ei-magazine.com. Check out their ever-growing content library, articles, videos, podcasts, events, training programs, ever-expanding great content over there for all of your emotional intelligence needs and curiosities. And of course, please, especially if you're a professional investigator, check out the International Association of Interviewers, certifiedinterviewer.com. That's where to go to find all the latest legal updates, news resources, content, videos, articles, events, everything IAI is putting on to make sure that professional interviewers have the tools and resources they need to further their education and conduct morally, legally, ethically successful interviews in any context. So please, we thank them for supporting us. Check them out. Now I present to you, Brittany Nicole Connor Savarda. Brittany, it is great to see you again. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's a pleasure, Michael. I'm really excited to be interrogated by you. <laughs> I'm sorry, did I say interrogated? Interviewed. Interviewed. <laughs> I appreciate that. I don't know that I've ever heard that before, but I, I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, so you and I have met professionally. We've spoken at the same event together before. And you've had me on your show. Thank you very much. So it's a pleasure to have the roles reverse a little bit and, and be able to ask you some questions. So emotional intelligence is your passion. That's everything that you work on in many different facets with all of the different things that you do. So to the degree that you're comfortable sharing, just to start the conversation, what drew you to this career focus? Mm. In short, I am a recovering miserable person. <laughs> um, you know, I think all of us, like we can talk about big T trauma, little T trauma, but just growing up, you don't realize sometimes how impactful your environment is in your behavior and how you feel about things and how you react. And so all of my, all the modeling of my parents kind of led to me having anxiety and ADD and OCD and I just got to a point where I'm like, okay, I can't, I'm, I'm in too much emotional distress and life is just not fun or pleasant. So I have to make a choice. I can continue to deny all of these things that are coming up in my life and blame other people as I'd been doing. Or I could say, I'm going to start to take control and responsibility for myself and see what I can change to try to get me into a better mental headspace and really on the path of success and fulfillment, whatever that looks like. And through that process, I just took a really deep dive in self-development and I was unknowingly developing my emotional intelligence. That's what I was practicing. And when I ran across Daniel Goleman's book, Emotional Intelligence, I was like, oh, this is what I've been doing for the past year. And it just stuck with me. And it was all I could talk about at work because I was working in corporate. And people are like, have you thought about, you know, maybe doing this for a living? Because this is all you talk about. And I'm like, 
no, but now I am. And so the rest is history. And I started my first business catalyst for change, which was actually, um, not founded on emotional intelligence, but more effective communication strategies. And then emotional intelligence was tacked on later. Very cool. And I've experienced a lot of your work firsthand, so can can certainly vouch for that. Haven't seen you in action. You mentioned that deep dive, uh, and I don't want to pry too much personally. I'll certain, pry away. I, I appreciate that. I got um, a crowbar if, bar if you want it. <laughs> well, so, so we've been talking for three minutes, and we've already mentioned interrogation and crowbars. I can just <laughs> can only guess where this conversation is going to take us after. Um, but I'm sure as you did that deep dive personally, and the lines began to kind of fade from the personal to the professional side back and forth. I think first there's room for, you know, real compliment and recognition for being able to share your journey with other people, but do it in a way that applies to them. So it's not mm -hmm. just, here's my story. This worked for me. Now you go figure it out, right. but actually continuing to do the research, continuing to develop the material, not just look at what worked, but why it worked and then apply it to others. You know, that's, that's a big lift and there's a lot to be said for that. So within that, I know firsthand that you're constantly doing research and you're constantly updating what you do. So I'm curious along maybe both your personal and professional journey, what was the most surprising thing that you learned? Oh, how much I didn't know and how much I don't know. I think there's this, I, there's actually a name for it and you probably would know this better than I do. But that state where you've obtained enough information to think you know something, but not enough information where you realize how much you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the space that I was in. And I, I remember when I first started my business, I would get so aggravated at other people. I'm like, oh, I know this stuff and you're doing it wrong. And so there was this like self-righteousness about it. And now I'm realizing like, I've changed so much in the past 10 years and even the past year that I've just finally decided, okay, I'm just going to accept that I don't know a lot of things and go with that. Nice. For me, when I, I mean, you mentioned the interrogation earlier, but growing up in, in that world, you know, being put on a stage at age 29 and say, go teach interrogation techniques. Like, I thought there were all kinds of riddles I had figured out. And then, yeah, hearing people say, well, that won't work. And I'm thinking, actually, it does work. And I've got a hard drive full of videos that prove it works, not just for me, but from coworkers. And then realizing, you know, it doesn't matter. There's more than one right or right-ish mm -hmm. way to do it. If it works for somebody else, their life, their view, their history, whatever it is, then let it go. Let them do that. And we'll continue to adapt and grow and learn on our end. And that... I believe there's an easy tie to that, to a concept that I read in your book, which I had heard before, but I, I really enjoyed how you put it together in your book in trying to keep in mind that everything that happens in front of us is neutral. We're the ones that give it meaning. We're the mm -hmm. ones that give it power based on all kinds of factors and perceptions and filters in, in our life. But even to go back to that, looking at what somebody else is saying and doing and thinking it's wrong or, or when we're challenged by somebody who maybe they really do know more, they have valuable different experience or maybe they don't. But when we experience those challenges or experience those difficulties, understanding that everything is neutral, literally everything that happens in front of us is neutral and we're the only ones that can give it any power or meaning. When people hear that, probably it's one thing for them to say, well, yeah, I get that. And then it's another thing for them to remember that and keep it in practice in conversations, especially emotional conversations, difficult topics, people they care about. Just last week in a seminar, we were talking about the difference between, you know, applying what we teach. You and I teach similar things mm -hmm. in business conversations, in personal mm -hmm. conversations, for me in investigations, like honestly, applying it in investigations was the easiest. Applying in business conversations was still pretty easy. Applying it with conversations with my family, well, now that, that gets tougher because of the emotional attachments. So with the skills that you've developed and the materials that you've developed to teach, what mechanisms have you learned in order to help understand and maintain that focus that everything is neutral and I'm the one that gets to choose what kind of power to give it? Mm, man, so 
you know, you talked about some people are like, yeah, I get that. Um, and then other people are like, but how do I apply it? I would even say there's a larger population, and this is just my experience, that are completely dismissive of the neutrality. And they go back to, and, and it's funny because what they often do is they still stay in that binary state of thinking, good, bad, right, wrong. So they'll say, so you're saying that Hitler massacring, killing millions of people that were innocent was good. And I'm like, okay, but now you're just flipping categories. Now you're saying it's good. I'm not dismissing pain. I'm not dismissing harm, right? And I think that's where I'm trying to get people to shift is instead of labeling things as good, bad, right, wrong, seeing it as being in harmony or doing harm. And when we switch that narrative, it it does change things. But to your point, you know, everything is filtered through our senses. And if we didn't have those senses, then again, everything would just happen. It would be more of the law of cause and effect, right? I think the biggest learning point for me over the past years is no longer trying to prove that to anybody and more so be that being has been a huge um wake up call for me because as you know when the ego gets involved even if someone agrees with us if we are trying to convince if we are trying to push our belief systems or ways of doing onto others Even if they agree, they may push back because nobody is going to tell us what to do. Nobody is going to control us. So now I just, if people say, well, I don't agree with that, I'd say, okay. Okay. And then we talk about the consequences. So if you continue to go down this route that you're taking, that you feel like is the best approach, what are the potential outcomes? And then if we look at the other approach, what are those potential outcomes? Now, of those two outcomes, which one is more suitable for most people, creates the less friction, the least amount of resistance, the least least amount of emotional tension? And then if it is the one that is counter to your belief system, let's talk about that. Why are you so tethered to that outcome? And it all goes back to the ego, right? Which I know that you've been doing. I've got a little backstage knowledge here. So I, I know you've been doing a lot of research on the ego. And I, we're coming right back to that. I promise. There wasn't an accident that you worked that into that answer twice. I promise you I'm picking up what you're putting down. But I, I want to circle back to something real quick. Because I believe what, what I'm hearing in your answer is the stronger something is tied to our self-image, the harder it is for us to let it go, how to see beyond it. And please tell me how you feel from your experience I feel like especially in emotionally charged conversations, and those could be about anything. I mean, Mm -hmm. we could be in the moment emotionally charged about any number of topics, no matter how rational or irrational it seems. It can be very hard for people to take an outcome-focused approach to the conversation. Like, where am I trying to go with this? And it's that, you know, people can call it game theory or situational awareness or anticipation or whatever it is, but... If I say X, what happens? If I say Y, what happens? Based on the outcomes I'm looking for, the value of this conversation, the value of the relationship, what's the right way to go? Have you learned or seen anything in your research that can help people shift towards more of that outcome-focused mindset as opposed to that, for lack of a better term, self-righteous or feel-good-right-now mindset? So I'm going to completely go against both of those for now yeah. and say, um, instead of being so outcome focused, because when we focus on the outcome, there is a bit of that. I don't know if self-righteousness is the right word, but we have an objective. And mm-hmm. when we have that objective, we can become blindsided to other opportunities for discussion. So when we stop focusing on the outcome and we instead say, you know, what are my needs in this conversation? Are my needs being led or driven by the ego or by what I call my authentic or true self Okay, that is more content 
and isn't, it doesn't have the expectations. It's not conditional. And am I being accommodating to the other person's needs? Am I being receptive to their needs? What's changed for me over the past few months has been instead of driving towards that outcome, being led by intention, being guided by intention, which forces me to check in with myself more frequently and be more receptive of the cues that other people are giving off. I have become hyper-tuned to people's body language and emotional energy lately. And I'm not really sure why. I, I do a lot of meditation. I go in the woods a lot. I'm a, <laughs> I guess, a new age hippie without being like the extreme woo-woo. <laughs> but um, intention, man, it's it's so powerful. And so intuition. You, yeah. Okay. So where is the marriage of ego and intention or how do those align? Mm, that's good. That's a good question. So what I'm seeing is that if our intention is rooted in any way in fear, then it's a very clear, it, it's clearly being driven by our ego. If it is rooted in compassion, understanding, love, then it's being guided by the authentic or true self. Now, how do we know whether it's the true self or the ego, because the ego does a great job of convincing us that it is the authentic or true self, right? Well, the way that I look at it is if we have any type of sense of control, like if we're trying to control the conversation, if we find ourselves trying to get someone to say or do something that we want if we get upset with what the outcome is, if uh, we are judging, if we are being critical, those are all signs that we're being guided by the ego. But the true self, again, it just is. It takes things moment by moment. It lives in the present. It's not attached to our identity or self-image. It has no judgment. It just takes things at face value. And when there is some ambiguity there, it knows how to ask the right questions that aren't leading questions. So I want to make sure I'm following the right way because there's a chance I didn't. I, I believe I understand the illustration you're making between the ego and the true self. And I believe that there are real powerful concepts there for us to go back and revisit about fear being a driver, mm -hmm. um, judgment being an indicator. There's there's a, a lot to pack there. Where does, and if I missed this, I sincerely apologize. Where does the intention piece begin to interweave with that? Like, is that when we're looking at the, the intentions of what we're saying or the intentions of how we are reacting? Is, is that part of like the indication process for you or the evaluation process? So again, I am very intuitive these days. I don't really have a, a process. It's very messy for me. Okay. And Fair I like enough. playing in the space of mess. But what I primarily use as, a, as an indicator for me is how am I feeling about it? And I talk okay. a lot about energy. And again, not to get like woo-woo, but if we're really living in the present moment, and you know this with the work that you do, you can pick up on these cues. And maybe it's micro-expressions. But there's also something to be said about someone's presence. Mm -hmm. You know, you can pick up on calm, on honesty. And if someone is talking to me and I just see like maybe the squinty eye, the cocked head, you know, for me, that implies that they're making a judgment, right? In, in my opinion. Okay. Or, or they're confused, right? Mm -hmm. There's like confusion. So then I have to be careful with, like, if, if I start asking questions in my head, if I have thoughts of, are they judging me? Are they doing this? That is a media indicator that my ego is guiding. But when it comes to intention, it's all for me about emotion. It's okay. not the thought. I think if we have a thought about our intention, like my intention is to go into this conversation and then you start listing all these things. 
there is a part of the ego attached there because you're thinking about the process. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. The ego can be involved in conversation and in process and all of these things and not have a negative effect, but it's all about being aware of its presence, how it's showing up. Um, And then I feel like there's another level beyond that. Like strategies and process are great, but being able to be guided by intuition is so powerful. And it's not something that you can teach to someone. And I don't know if that answered your question. And again, like it's very vague and very messy because when when the authentic self is there, it goes with what feels right. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. And you're right. Intuition is something that is hard to teach. I'm I'm very lucky that of, of all the things I get to do, I, I get to dabble in teaching martial arts. And not too long ago, I was asked to teach a class and I thought that I would teach a, a series of moves that just come natural to me that I do frequently. Um, and I'm not an expert by any means. It's just like we all have things that make sense to us, our own habits, our own behavior patterns or whatever. So I'm like, I'll go teach that. And I was literally driving into the academy and started breaking down how I was going to teach it and realized, I don't think I can teach it. Like, I don't, like, I don't know how to verbalize that this is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm doing. This is what they do that causes me to do this. And this is, it just sort of all happens. And until I can reverse engineer that and turn it into something that I can teach logically, step for step, put it into a behavior pattern, then I can't teach it. I just, so I needed another plan. So I I went to something else and, and I taught something else that night. So hearing you talk about the value of following intuition, yes, the difficulty of putting it on paper or putting it into a system, mm-hmm. yes. And when you talked about the um, the reading of the nonverbal behavior and the body language, my guess is what may be happening, and I would love your thoughts on this because I'm making potential unfair assumptions after hearing you say like three sentences. Um, is based on the work you're doing and based on your heightened sense of self-awareness, your contextual awareness is probably increasing. So when we read people's behavior, oftentimes the real value of understanding, because you're right, generally when we see their behavior change, that's indicative of a shift in their emotional state. Mm -hmm. And identifying the accuracy of what emotion are they in now? What are they likely thinking or feeling? How does that impact this conversation where we're looking to go? That typically is driven by the context the conversation is happening in. So you and I could be speaking and I could make a face. You mentioned micro expressions earlier. I could make a face and that could mean 10 different things in 10 different conversations. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. my guess is the focus that you have in the work that you're doing is leading to that heightened contextual awareness, which allows for some of these things to become more clear and also likely to steal a half a sports analogy is slowing the game down because the more you do it, the more it makes sense. Things tend to happen in front of us slower. We're not racing to catch up and understand it's, it's easier for us to, to, you mentioned earlier, stay calm and see what's happening in front of us. Yes, from the intention or from the intuition piece, I certainly wouldn't ask for like a further description there. I get that. Are there particular things that you tell yourself or particular, I know you mentioned you meditate a lot. Are there preparation routines that you go through before some of these conversations to try to put yourself in a place to be able to maintain your awareness of all of this? Mm, That's a really good question. Utmost surrender. And that sounds so weird to people, but every morning, like quite literally every morning, I don't think I've missed a day in a few months, I wake up and say just, you know, in in this, to the universe, whatever, to myself, allow me to be in full surrender. And what that means to me is greeting the day as is with no fixed agenda no mission to solve someone else's problems, but to simply be, to simply be the person that others need me to be in that moment, to be an authentic chameleon, if you will, meaning that I am still being true to myself, 
but I am also able to alter my delivery, my energy, and meet people where they are. And that is so powerful. I don't think people realize how powerful surrendering is because we're in a society that's all about process and there's a place for that, right? There's a place for process and there's a place for research and there's a place for methodologies. But at the same time, they can only take us so far. So a couple months ago, I created this model and I'm not saying it's a true model, like don't follow it like scripture, but trying to make sense of how I think currently. And so I call it the progressive enlightenment model. Now, I'm not talking about like enlightenment, you're floating, you know, into the stars. You could, I guess, see it that way if you wanted to, but it's kind of like a pyramid. And so think of the old school food pyramid before it became the plate. The largest portion of that is believing because beliefs take zero evidence. You don't need evidence to have a belief. Someone could tell you that unicorns live on Mars. And if you're like, I love unicorns and I think that would be cool. So I'm going to believe it. Right. But then the next stage is knowing. And knowing is more so like information acquired through maybe lectures, reading books, podcasts, et cetera. But there's no need for application at that point. We're just information gathering. And then above that is doing. So doing is applying what we know and doing trial and error, making mistakes, and having our own experiences with that information. Now, the beliefs are still going to be there. The information is still going to be there. But the difference is you're no longer staying tethered to any one of those. Because if you stay tethered to beliefs and you're so like sucked into that, that if you gain information and insight that are counter to those beliefs, then you're never going to develop that knowledge, that new information. Same with doing. If you know something and then you put it into action and then you come up with different results and you're stuck on knowing, then you're going to dismiss that experience. Most successful people are in the doing space, right? Some people graduate to the information, the knowing space, but most of your wealthy, successful business owners, leaders, entrepreneurs are in the doing space. But there's one level above that that is not very talked about. It's the very tiny little top of the pyramid. And that is the space of being. It's where you have this understanding, you've applied all these things, you've done the grunt work, but then you've taken all of that massive knowledge, insight, information, and you've converted that into wisdom. And that's where I believe intuition comes into play. We have this inner knowing that is guiding us and we realize that doing more is counterproductive in this space. And so that's the space that I am playing in now. And it has been insanely eye-opening and mind-blowingly, I don't even know the word to use, but I went from working 14, 16-hour days, seven days a week for almost a year, like seven, eight months on end, doing, 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 feeling great about what I was doing, not hating my job. And now I am literally doing the same amount of work, putting out the same amount of work in working maybe four hours a day. Wow. What shifted? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I really can't explain it. I don't, obviously, I became more efficient with certain things. The more that you do something, you figure out better ways of doing it. But it was this astronomical shift once I started to literally surrender to the process. But I can't explain it any further than that. No, I, I appreciate it. And I'm, I'm curious, I'm trying to, there's two things that I want to go back to. One that I really want to go back to, but we're going to hold off on that for a second. When we talk about developing the intuition and I think about going up that period, the pyramid, excuse me, that you talked about, there's how much of our intuition do you think is based on experience? Mm -hmm. I think to draw a parallel, now I keep saying I think, which is one of my own pet peeves. So I'm super guilty and it's being recorded. How about that? Um, 
but experience doesn't necessarily equate to years. So like I've told the story before a long time ago, I was part of an interview process where there were two final candidates and the mm-hmm. VP in charge said he wanted that they were both essentially equal. They could both do the job. And if they weren't interviewed at the same time, he would take either one. But because they were interviewed at the same time, he wanted the person with 10 years experience, not the person with two years experience. And he was very displeased with my follow-up question. When I asked him, why would he choose the person that it took to be 10 years to get this good, as opposed to the person that it took two years to get this good. That was the end of the argument. I lost. He hired the guy with the 10 years experience. It is what it is. Um, But a lot of, for me, actually, I would love your opinion on this. Let me do it this way. I feel like a lot of our intuition or gut feeling is driven by our experience and memories of events, for lack of a better phrase, that we retain like subconsciously. Like I can't, it's not up here. I can't touch it, but Mm -hmm. they're in here. Like my brain knows it happened and it's okay. I've been here before. I've seen this before. This is familiar. This is how I need to respond. This is how I need to act. So I'm curious if you feel like all of the experience that you have collected over the last, not just through your personal journey, but especially over the last several years in your very focused professional journey, how much of that do you think maybe led you to a tipping point where this intuition you feel like can start taking over and guiding so much more of what you do? That's a really good question that I don't know if I have a solid answer to. I do believe that experience definitely gives you insight and programs you to be more aware and vigilant of things, which leads to that gut reaction. I also think that there's a part of this that isn't commonly talked about because it is seen as kind of woo-woo, but there's this greater knowledge that I believe we all have access to. Because when you think about the information out there, like every source of information, it came from within someone. That is insight, right? It's not outside, it's insight. And we're so used to collecting the information of others' insights and regurgitating that and understanding it at an intellectual level that we're not taking a lot of time to develop our own insights from just simply being still enough to listen to ourselves and to reflect and to think about things and to analyze. I think there's a lot to say about just being still and present and all the things that we're missing out on in life. So I think it's a combination of experience and information and being present. I think presence has a huge role in intuition. I would agree. And I think that I'm tying things together that may or may not tie together perfectly. This is your expertise, not mine. But that goes back to the acceptance of neutrality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can accept everything as neutral. It's easier to just stay present and not get all wound up about one thing or another that takes me away from here, lost in my internal monologue, flaring my right. own emotions, looking for confirmation and, and all those other things that are talked about so frequently. You're taking me further away from the question I wanted to ask, but we'll get back Sorry. to it. <laughs> no, no, no. We're going to take this conversation wherever we go. Um, again, and, and this ties back into something that I read in your book. The concept of understanding our own triggers, understanding what upsets us, what sets us off, what could sit down any emotional path. It doesn't have to mm-hmm. be anger or frustration, but, but down any emotional path. So as you talk about being present, as you talk about just being still, I imagine a huge component of that is being self-aware mm-hmm. to the level that we can understand what our triggers are and not necessarily avoid them, although sometimes that might be necessary, but be able to identify and manage through them in any given conversation at any given time. Yeah. How does that work for you? Oh, let's let's dive in. All right. So I'm going to, I love going down rabbit holes, but I promise I'll try to stay away from a tangent. All right. So self-awareness is critical. I mean, it's the foundation of emotional intelligence. I think if all of us were able to just develop self-awareness, so much would change 
from that alone, everything else I believe that is part of emotional intelligence, like self-regulation, empathy, motivation, all of these things, conflict management, relationship management, would naturally fall into place if we simply just developed self-awareness. But I believe the reason that is that is extremely hard for people to do and the reason that many people focus more on the social elements of emotional intelligence, like listening, communication skills, et cetera, is because it's easier to work outside of ourselves than it is to work within ourselves. So the question that I've been asking lately is how do I help people see those parts of themselves that have experienced trauma, that do create that defensiveness, bolster the ego, so to speak? How do I get them to see that with compassion, curiosity, and understanding? And that's how I define emotional intelligence. There's so many definitions out there. But if you can develop compassion both for self and others, that leads to curiosity. Because now you can look at the parts of yourself that otherwise you'd be like, mm, no, I'm denying that because that's ick. that makes me feel icky, makes me feel bad about myself. And then when we have that curiosity, then we can develop understanding as to why is this triggering me? What is the source of that trigger? But we live in a society that one bolsters the ego, says that if you do these things, you're a good person or you're a bad person. If you did that, you are right or you're wrong, Right. So there's so many, and I'm sure you've had this happen to you in your life before where somebody says to you, man, you know, so-and-so, I thought they were such a good person because they did X, Y, and Z, but then I found out they did blah, blah, blah. I didn't realize they were such a bad person. So we take someone completely out of one element into the other one. This is the way I like to think of the ego in ourselves, right? So the ego is self-protective. The purpose is to protect our identity, to protect our self. Same with the skin. So think of your skin. It is self-protection. What happens when you have trauma on the skin? Especially severe trauma. The more severe it creates, creates typically more scar tissue. Your body overproduces cells to protect itself because it's experienced trauma. Well, it only happens on the spot that you had the trauma. It doesn't, you don't create scar tissue over your entire epidermis. That's not how it works. The ego is the same way. So somebody could be a very quote unquote good person in one area of their lives, but in another area where they've experienced trauma and the ego has been strengthened through that trauma, it's going to be more defensive. It's going to be more resistant. It's going to be more aggressive because it's learned to self-protect in that area of their life. So I know I did like a weird, like, again, I went down a rabbit hole off on a tangent, but that's kind of the way, like, I don't even remember your initial question, but I'm just going to sum it up with that's how I view the ego. And I always tell people, try to connect with individuals where they don't have trauma. It's much easier to break through and then address the trauma later. But I've also learned it's not my job to change other people. It's not my job to heal other people's trauma. It is my job to heal my trauma so that I can be the best person for other people. And that has led to so many amazing changes in my life and in my business and how I connect. I'm sure it has. It is, I listened to the rant that followed you as you went that piece about protecting the identity. I think there's certainly validity to, it's easier to work on others, AKA judge, AKA blame, AKA rationalize others than it is to work on ourselves because it makes us uncomfortable to your point. Mm -hmm. And if there is anything that our brains desire, it is consistency and comfort with how we see ourselves thinking, feeling, and acting in any given set of scenarios. Mm -hmm. So in order to have to step aside from that and explore it from a different perspective, we might be wrong. There might be sense of improvement. This might be my fault. That can, that is, I was going to say can, that is certainly difficult for many people to do in many contexts. It's easier in some than others. And everybody of course is different, but that painful self-exploration you're correct, is much harder than just turning it around and blaming it on somebody else. And I believe there's a lot of validity in your point as well, where if everybody, and I'm in a glass house throwing stones here, like I'm a part of this problem. 
if everybody was more self-aware and if everybody was at a place where they were emotionally confident enough and capable enough to explore their own opportunities to grow and evolve, then a lot of these other problems may not go away, but they certainly would be more manageable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To that piece of the identity and protecting our identity, that, that, that was a perfect segue to get back. So last week I was teaching the session. It was for a group of CEOs and one of the CEOs in there was, he wasn't nearly as rude as he thought he was being. I didn't think he was rude at all. His questions were completely valid. His conversation was hundred percent valid. Um, he kept getting back to wanting to be his authentic self. He is somebody who he's a CEO. He runs a very successful practice, multiple locations, plenty of employees, but he is somebody with the military and law enforcement background now running a private sector business that has nothing to do with law enforcement, military or investigations. And so I'm, I'm drastically over summarizing. Essentially, the message he was saying was I should be able just to tell people what to do and they should go do it. People should be able to tell me what's going on, what's wrong, what the problem is. They shouldn't have to feel like they need to talk a certain way. And for me, Anytime I hear somebody say, I shouldn't have to do something, mm -hmm. like, pat yourself on the back because A, you're probably right. And B, you just identified the right thing to do. And anytime you say they should, well, what are we doing that's causing them to feel like they can't? So there's a, a deeper conversation there. He kept going back to the concept of being his authentic self. Like he felt like in order for him to adapt how he communicates with his employees and with his customers, that he wasn't being true to himself. And the conversation that transpired really amongst the group after that was, was he looking at this as adapting who he is, or was he looking at this as a clean break from who he is and having to be something entirely different? And from my bias perspective, it's just an adaptation. You are who you are and you can be your authentic self while you're adapting to meet the needs of others. People would disagree with that. And some people will say, you know, this is my authentic self. And to be true to me, this is how I always need to be. And a few minutes ago, you mentioned the concept of the authentic chameleon. And that piques my attention because I'm making, again, some assumptions here. I feel like that kind of ties in with that thought that being true to ourselves doesn't have to be a rigid framework, that we can be true to who we are, what we believe, our values, our ethics, whatever, but be able to meet people where they need to be met, communicate in a way that they need to be communicated to, not in every single conversation, mm -hmm. but certainly in the more valuable or high impact conversations. So that's a very rant-ish on my behalf way to get back to asking you, how can people be that authentic chameleon to help meet others where they need to be while remaining true to themselves? Be nobody. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> but in, in all honesty, like that is what I've learned. So many people talk about authentic self, true self, but they're still speaking from the ego. They're trying to define who their authentic self is by attaching more labels like, oh, well, my authentic self is understanding and this and that. You don't need to label it. You just need to be it. If you have to define who your authentic self is. Now, like I said, there's a place for everything. Sometimes it starts with that. Maybe. But what I've learned is you don't need that. You don't need to define who your authentic self is. And I've also seen the authentic self used to justify wrongdoings. You know, like I'm a type A person, so I like things done this way and I want information delivered to me this way. And this is just who I am. This is my authentic self where they say something that's kind of nasty and they're like, well, I'm just being true to myself. No, no, no. You are using that to justify your ego's lack of self-control and regulation. The true self in all of us has no attachment to, and this is my perception, right? This isn't law or facts. What I feel to be true is that our authentic self doesn't need definitions, doesn't need labels, doesn't need a playbook. 
because again, it just is. It greets and meets the day as it is and is very in touch and in tune with how it is perceiving reality, how it is filtering reality and engaging with other people within the reality and constantly checking in to say, I just got triggered or I just had this thought. Where is that coming from? And analyzing it without judgment. That's what I define as an authentic and true self, right? But when it comes to the shoulds and woulds and, you know, then I feel like we're getting back into the indoctrinations and the scripts of how life should play out based on egocentric systems. Yeah, and those expectations that we take into any interaction and then filter all of our observations through and start making judgments based on. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, And there was something that you said that I wanted to tie back to. Um, well, congratulations on well, me. Let me let, so actually, you just said something that I want to expand on. You're talking about expectations. I think that's another sign of the ego. This is hard for people to hear and hard to understand. And if you would have told this to me six months ago, I would have said you're you're crazy. But when I go into some people say, well, what do you want to do in five years? What do you want your business look in five years? A few months ago, I would have gave you a full plan. Here's where I want to be in five years. Here's the number of speeches I want to give, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have a five-year plan. I don't have a a one-week plan. Now, does that mean that I'm going to throw everything away? Like, I know I have podcasts to release. I know I have articles to write. I realize that. But in terms of expectations and what I'm expecting, I, I no longer have expectations. I set standards for myself based on service, but to me, it's how can I best serve today? Period. End of sentence. I like that. And it gets back to staying consistent with your concept of just being in the moment. could be following your intuition or just being available to everything that's happening around you. And for me, selfishly for me, it gets back to that contextual awareness. How's it all working together Mm -hmm. in the context around us? I think that ties into, I say, I think, I assume it ties into a concept that I saw in your book as well, that piqued my curiosity in a positive way, I promise. And that's when you talk about the concept of questioning authority. So when people hear question authority, they think of, you know, so I grew up in the eighties and nineties. So you think about kids on skateboards and backwards baseball hats, questioning authority, right? I don't know that people would expect an emotional intelligence specialist to stand up and tell them to question authority. And I don't know that those two thoughts necessarily would be expected to go hand in hand. So I'm curious from your perspective, what does it mean to question authority? Well, first off, let's talk about authority, right? Because that's another social construct that we have. Authority in my book is someone who is typically older has a lot more quote unquote years of experience and is in a position of hierarchy of leadership, right? But at the end of the day, we're all human beings. We all make mistakes. We all have blind spots. And if I see something that is wrong, or if I have a question about something I don't feel like I need to go up the chain of command. And I definitely don't feel like that person is above being questioned. Um, I, I, I was going to say wrong is wrong, but then I would be getting into my uh, binary categories. But is this the most effective way of doing something? Is this causing harm to other people? Have you thought about these things? To me, those are all valid questions. And if someone is telling me you can't do that, to me, that is one, um, the ego. And there's almost like a suppression there, right? Like you're suppressing curiosity, you're suppressing creativity, you're suppressing engagement. There's all these things that you're suppressing that allow for more effective ways of doing and being. Yeah, and I recently had a conversation with a retired general 
And one of the things that he brought up is recency bias in full effect, by the way. One of the things that he brought up is in his leadership roles, he used to always tell people, go ahead and give me the good news, but I need to hear the bad news. Mm. And you're never going to get in trouble for giving me the bad news. You might be in trouble for not giving me the bad news, but you're never going to be in trouble for giving me the bad news. And then always being open to critical feedback and encouraging that. Where am I wrong? Where am I missing something? And I'm guessing this has kind of been your experience as well. I don't feel like a lot of leaders open themselves up to that. I don't feel a lot of leaders truly communicate or, or create an environment for that type of communication. They might say that they do. They might want to. They might like posts on LinkedIn that people say do, but they don't necessarily do that. So from a questioning authority piece, it's not necessarily rebellion. Mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. falls into the line of, are we doing the right thing for the right reasons? And can we have a conversation? Can I come to that understanding? Can you come to that understanding as we work through whatever this initiative is? So not only just leadership. I mean, we see this, like, it's just, it's a people problem, right? It's funny when I talk about emotional intelligence with people from various industries, they're like, oh yeah, that's such a healthcare issue, or that's such a construction issue, or that's such a, it's like, no, no, no. It's a people problem. Doesn't matter if you are a construction worker, a surgeon, uh, in government, religion, it does not matter. It is a people problem. And until we see that as a universal issue, then we're always going to try to point the finger at this system, this tool, this industry, this blah, 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 blah. Again, back to labels all over again. Right. And we see this showing up in cancel culture today. You can't have a conversation without someone being offended. Typically, not everyone, obviously, but more and more people seem to have this you're either with me or you are against me. There's this lack of openness to conversation. And that's why I tell people, and this is me kind of getting off topic, but tell people when the pendulum swings too far to either side, we're in trouble. We have to have balance. On one side, it's suppression of expression. The other side is the enabling of expression to the point that you can't say anything without offending them. But then the other one is you can't feel anything. You shouldn't feel anything. No, we, we have to be in the middle. We have to be content with being uncomfortable with having these difficult conversations and being open to other people's perspectives while also being honest with ourselves. It would be funny, and this is a sociopolitical topic-free podcast, (laughs) without giving specific examples, it would be funny if we took people from opposite poles on pick an issue, any issue, the loudest ones, and we got them together in a room, how many thoughts, concepts, feelings they actually had in common. Mm -hmm. I would, I guarantee you the number would surprise them both, whatever that number is, once you strip away the labels and it gets back to, you know, call it ego, call it self-identity. Once we start attaching ourselves to labels and we start wrapping those labels around our self-image, now how do I need to think, act, believe in order to be consistent with that label? And if I think, act, believe in a way that's inconsistent, not only do I feel discontent inside, but now what do I do to rectify that? And how do I need to behave in the eyes of others so they will see me? So I do think you raise a great point about the authentic self. How do we arrive at who do we, who are we? What do we believe? What's our moral ethical value construct, whatever that is but do it in a way where we involve as few labels as possible that then become titles, if you will, that we feel forced to live up to one way or the other. I had a conversation with somebody recently where I actually opened it by saying a lot of times when I teach, because of my interrogation background, people start asking questions, you know, what kinds of cases have you worked and who have you talked to? And has this happened or that happened? I will say, I will put this flag in the sand and say that the overwhelming majority of people I ever interviewed, and I believe I can speak for my former teammates as well, we interviewed relatively to largely good people. There were some bad ones, don't get me wrong, but most of them were good people who made some wrong decisions and they need to be accountable for those decisions. 
However, they made those decisions because of the context of the situation they were experiencing at the time. And had you pulled that context away, mm -hmm. they likely would have made a different decision and their life would have different outcomes. And that's not absolving them of accountability. I'm not saying let them walk free and slap them on the back and thank them for whatever mistake they made. They got to be accountable for that. But just to look at them as a bad person who did a bad thing, while that is sometimes true for most people, had the context been different, their actions, their decisions, their choices would have been different. So to be able to understand the entirety of the situation in any set of circumstances, whether we are trying to connect or understand somebody else or whether we're trying to understand ourselves is super important. Yeah. Context is so critical. And so many people are so resistant to seeing the context in which something occurs. They keep reverting back to the context in which it serves them. And it's like, for example, you know, is an egg hard or soft? Well, two truths can exist simultaneously. Multiple truths can exist simultaneously. It depends on what part of the egg you're talking about. Right. But some people are like, no, it is hard. It's very clear to tell that the egg is hard. And the other person's like, no, it's soft. It's like, okay. We have to be able to open our minds. And like you said, going back to attachment to identity, the more that we attach things to our identity, the less open we are to other perspectives, aka the context and being accepting of that context, all ego-driven. The, the moment in any conversation we start to feel uncomfortable is often the moment where it's most important to start listening. Mm. But yes, the moment that we want to shut down the most. Can I share a story? Please. So this happened recently. I was spending time with someone who, I mean, the we're so much alike, right? But I'm in a different stage now. Like I see more of my less self-aware self. That's not saying that I'm not trying to say that that means they're bad or they're wrong, whatever. It's just, I'm now here, but I can totally see myself in them 100%. And everything that came out of their mouth, for the most part, like 80%, was so hypercritical and negative of other people. They would call people idiots, dumbass, you know, um, all these things because these people weren't living their life as they felt that it should have been, should be lived, right? Or they're doing things that they don't agree with. And before I would argue with them, I would try to prove the case of the other person and say, well, have you thought about this? Or, well, I don't, I don't agree with that. I would always try to pitch my perception to try to get them to see a, a grander perspective. It never worked. It always turned into a back and forth argument. So this time when I was with this individual, I just said, you know what? I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything. But on top of not saying anything, because you know um, very well that while you don't say anything, your body language speaks loud and clear. So I set my intention to just be there hold that compassion for them and realize that clearly there's some judgment going on within themselves to be so hypercritical of others. And I knew that, well, I don't know that. I think I know that because again, I see that in myself. So I looked at this person and I tried to just, again, just not to pretend to love them or show compassion, but really embody it. And I just looked at them and I made complete eye contact. And I acknowledged them. So there was some head nods, but there was never a, a yes or I agree or I disagree, nothing. And what happened was they, it seemed that they were becoming a little uncomfortable with making eye contact with me. It seemed to me that there was some inner dialogue going on, maybe some self-reflection happening because there would be little pauses in between what they were saying. And then the intensity of their criticism started to lessen. 
And then it abruptly ended and they finished with, well, anyways. And then they started talking about something completely different. And I can only imagine, again, from my perspective, my own situations I'm imposing, that they were asking themselves, because we always feed off of people, right? It's like, how are they perceiving me? And when people are a complete blank slate, all they have is a mirror. And so silence is powerful. Non-critical silence. Yes. Yeah. That, that non-critical piece is, is super yeah. important. Uh, yeah. And, and I'm making some assumptions here for the record. I also believe that when people aren't expecting silence and they get it, they're looking for cues as to what the silence represents. So yes. they're becoming more hyper in tune to your nonverbal communication because they're trying to figure out why you're being quiet. Exactly. And then to your point, if they're not getting the reactions that they desire, at some point they've got to take some kind of change of course there. Yeah. But it was fascinating. It was a fun experiment. And it's like, oh, wow. Like, this was very effective. It saved me from an argument. It saved them from their ego feeling like it needed to buck back. And the conversation changed. To nerd out for half a second, what you're describing with trying to pitch your perspective to change them, I'm going to have to look this up. So if this is wrong in the notes, I'll put that this is wrong. I promise. I believe that falls under social judgment theory, if I'm recalling the correct communication theory, where often if somebody has an idea of feeling a belief system, the closer that is tied to their self-image, then even logical, factual information that is presented to them that the presenter is hoping to dissuade them with actually has a boomerang effect and pushes them further back into the belief system that they are. I don't know the, the term for it. Maybe you're right. But what you're saying is spot on. Yeah. Yeah. It can actually push them even further towards their beliefs and be counterproductive. Which is then frustrating for the presenter of the counter evidence because they're mm -hmm. like, this is so painfully rational and obvious. Why is it having the opposite effect? And the conversation blows up. So but it goes back to the ego, right? It goes right back to the ego. The ego wants primarily to be right and to be in control. And when you present information, no matter how factual, rational, you could say the sky is blue and they could say it's red just because they don't want to be wrong, even though it's very clear to both of us that it's blue. The ego doesn't care. It just wants to be right. It wants to be in control. And that's why kind of pulling back and allowing people to be attracted to you, the, the less that I talk now, the more people want me to talk. Mm -hmm. They inquire more because they realize I have no agenda. I have nothing to prove. And so they let their guard down and they become open to having those conversations. But we don't see that as being productive because we think, well, I need to show them. I need to prove to them all of these things. And with that information, they'll change. And that's not how the ego works. That's not how the change process works either. So with the, the ego reference, I know that although maybe you're working fewer hours a day now, you're not stopping. You're constantly moving. You're constantly evolving. You're constantly doing more things. Uh, you know, from when we first met and you had Catalyst for Change and the podcast, now you have Emotional Intelligence Magazine. I know you're working on new things, new directions. So what are you working on now? What's next for you? Yeah. Um, so yeah, the magazine's pretty new. I started a group coaching program. We meet uh, twice a month. It's called Combo Shop Fellowship, where we just have intentional conversations. We focus on one specific topic and then we take a deep dive every month. And then I'm also working on a second book right now. Very nice. And it's going to be heavily focused on the true self, the ego and intention. And I don't know what it's going to look like. You know, my first book was a very quick, I, mean, I knew exactly what I wanted it to look like. And it happened very quickly. This one has morphed so many times. Um, so I think I'm going to share things from my perspective, share my life stories and the insights that have come to me. Originally, it was going to be more of kind of like the first book, like here's ways to X, Y, Z. But I'm realizing that while that is effective, there's also another level where we can learn from other people's experiences, but that's not the only way, right? So I'm taking a new approach. So I'm really excited about that, but I don't know when it's going to be out because I'm still 
trying to figure out what it's even going to look like. Well, that's that's the beauty of the project. It's yours. Yeah. It's, and just thinking back on my book, the the original table of contents and what the final book ended up being were like 25% the same. So as it evolves and you learn and take new angles and find new passions and explore it, the, the outcome is likely going to be greater in holes than you initially anticipated when you started. So where can people find you? People who are interested, they want to learn more, they want to explore this deeper. Where do they find you and your work? So if they want to connect with me personally, LinkedIn's my primary platform. I have an Instagram and a Facebook, but I'm, I'm not very active on those. I am on TikTok. I do fairly regular videos on TikTok that are informative. Um, and that's at self underscore liberator on TikTok. And then, yeah, the podcast is great. Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence. The magazine, ei-magazine.com. All of those are resources, free resources to learn more. And if they're interested in your book, it is called? This one is uh, the one that you have is the EQ deficiency. You can find that on Amazon or go into your local bookstore. They should have it in the catalogs at least. And uh, TBD, the title of the new one. And we'll make sure we put links to everything you just mentioned in the show notes, of course. And if you want to preview the new one, once you've got an idea, you can shoot me a note and I can add it or we can have a whole nother conversation. And we oh, can that'd be awesome. Thank you. I can't thank you enough for taking the time today. It's always great to see you. It's always great to catch up and learn from you and hear what you're working on. I appreciate you inviting me. It's a pleasure. Thank My you, pleasure. Michael. Take care. Be safe. We'll see you soon. Once again, Brittany, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Share your story, your experiences, your insights for all the listeners and viewers. I hope you all have takeaways from that conversation in order to help evolve and evolve and adapt how we connect with other people, how we can add value to the conversations, understand where they're coming from, and really achieve outcomes in our conversations that may never have been possible before. So Brittany, thank you very much. And of course, thank you to our sponsors. Let's start with Brittany and Emotional Intelligence Magazine. Please check out ei-magazine.com for all of your most up-to-date emotional intelligence resources. Their videos, their podcasts, their articles, their events, training programs. Brittany has so much going on over there. Please check them out. Humantel. If you're interested in learning more about accurately evaluating nonverbal communication, especially facial expressions, head over to humantel.com. Enter the code INQUASIVE25 for 25% off all of their online training. Please check them out. And of course, the International Association of Interviewers. For all the professional interviewers out there, please head over to certifiedinterviewer.com. Check out all the latest resources they have, the newest events they have going on, all the legal updates, everything professional interviewers need to know to continue to raise their level and their performance as they conduct morally, legally, and ethically successful interviews across contexts. International Association of Interviewers, certifiedinterviewer.com. Please check them out. Thank you all for taking the time to listen or watch this conversation today. I sincerely appreciate it. Please do the things the algorithms love to be done, especially for the guests to help give them the exposure. Please like the show, follow the show, subscribe to the show, share it with your friends. Give us your feedback. What are you really liking applying? What don't you like so much? And of course, if you have people that you believe would be a great guest, a great conversation, send them our way. Please make the connection so we can share their experience with everybody else as well. Thank you so much. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. Please stay safe. Take care of each other. We'll see you next time.